Welcome to MBA's Unplugged. I'm your host, John Ford. As long as my tuition check clears next spring, I'm your host anyway. I'm here today with Pirani Steiner, who is our guest this week. Uh, Pirani, thanks for being on the show. Awesome. Thank you. So Pirani, let's start with uh, your background. Where are you from? I am originally from Boulder, Colorado, and that's kind of where I grew up and was raised. Um, that's near the university. It's near the University of Colorado. What's it like growing up in a college town? Yeah, I mean, it's half the population is college students. Everything kind of revolves around the college atmosphere. We have really great sports events, and I think the community is definitely enhanced because of all the students that are there. Did you go to college in Colorado? Yeah, so I didn't, I didn't go to CU Boulder, but I did go to the University of Denver, which was about 30 minutes away. Perfect balance say? of being close to, you know, my home, home base, but then also getting, you know, a little more separation and making a new community of friends. What did you study there? Business. So I did business administration with, you know, this focus in marketing, but then also minors in law and ethics and legal studies. So your business all the way, business undergrad, business and business school. Yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> and so one might assume that after college, you had gone to work in business somewhere. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in college, I really what I learned from my business degree is that I wanted to be challenged in any work environment. And that's what I sought. Um, all the positions that I saw my friends taking, they were really cool, but I don't think they were a good fit for me. Where I found my best fit was actually in the Peace Corps. So I ended up joining the Peace Corps after undergrad. So talk to me about this. This is really interesting. How do you go about joining the Peace Corps? When do you start? What's the process? What are they looking for? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, you know, if anyone wants to join the Peace Corps, it's like you just go in and you apply and you try to figure it out along the way. For me personally, I tried to talk to a recruiter and see what they what they were looking for. You know, my perception was that it was really hard to get into. The recruiter told me I needed a master's degree. Um, and so I immediately came in with this perception that it was going to be impossible. I did think it was impossible. So maybe I put a little more effort into my application, but you apply. I think the application was due January 1st. I applied very early, spent months on my essay. Um, it's just one short, I think 500 word essay, um, and ended up getting an interview and a offer request before the deadline. But in general, you submit it in January and then they'll accept you. And it's about six to eight months before you actually start and go to your post. What kind of onboarding and training do you get when you join the Peace Corps? So when you get it, when you originally get accepted, they'll tell you kind of what they expect from you out of your job position in terms of language requirements. Um, so they expect you to hopefully do some sort of Duolingo or Rosetta Stone before, if you don't know the language, the host country language before coming in. In terms of technical skills, ideally, they've hired a candidate that's willing and able to learn the technical skills, if not, um, if they don't have them already. But when you first get to your post, so I went to Cameroon, when you first get to Cameroon, you spend three months training. So you learn the language, you live with the host family, and you learn a lot of the technical skills that you'll need to do the job that you're, you're hope, hopefully going to do at your post. What is the predominant language in Cameroon? And did you speak any foreign languages when you joined? Yeah, so when I joined, when I applied, I was doing a Spanish minor. So, you know, I had been trained, I guess, in some sort of Spanish language, but they speak French there. 
and it's half French speaking, half English speaking. We worked predominantly in the French speaking languages in the French speaking language regions. So I learned French, didn't know any French coming in, um, but they really help you get up to speed quickly. You live with a host family that only speaks the language. Um, so it's kind of sink or swim situation. Well, at, at least the foreign language that you had been learning was close to French. Yeah, definitely in the romance, you know, language category, I think it helps a lot. But Cameroon also has their a lot of their own dialects. And once you get posted in your specific village, they might speak a different local language that you also hopefully are able to adapt to or at least, at least learn some of um, in order to integrate better. So coming from Colorado, obviously, you, um, you're applying for the Peace Corps, you're interested in doing this, you know, you're going to be going overseas. At what point do you know what country you're going to? Is it during the application process? Is it after selection? When do you actually find out? Yeah, so you find out, You, for me personally, I submitted an application to go anywhere. So I applied theoretically wherever they, they needed me. And then after I submitted that, someone else reached out to me, a recruiter or you know, first round interviewer reached out and said, you are up for review for Cameroon. And at that point, I could then prepare for that specific interview moving forward, knowing that I was going to be working in Cameroon. How did you feel about the Cameroon assignment? Like, was this Honestly, exciting? Went- did you feel like you had won the country lottery or was it like, oh, I don't even know where Cameroon is? I think... I think in all aspects of, you know, how I measure like excitement, I was thrilled one, because when I applied, I kind of applied to go anywhere because I wanted to go somewhere I knew nothing about. Um, And when I heard about Cameroon, I mean, it really was as bad as this sounds something like, wow, I don't know anything about it. I have no, you know, preconceived notions. I really have no sort of like history of the country. All I know is that they have this really awesome soccer team. And from there, it was more of my own research to figure out what was happening. But I think that set myself up for success because I came in not knowing anything um, and went from there. Um, how, how long does it take them to get you into the host country and to actually put you in country from the first day that you were officially with the Peace Corps? So when I, I was first accepted my... Um, offer in December. And then the following September was when I left. So it was almost a full year before I started my assignment. Um, And I think I was up for review for Cameroon in December. And then once you accept, you um, accept for a position, they'll tell you when you're starting, but it's usually about six to eight months until you leave for the country. And where in the world are you before you go to your posting? Are you in DC? Are you in Colorado? Yeah, so it's usually wherever you were either working or going to college before that. Um, I was in Denver, and then they host you in Washington, D.C. for about two days for like a pre-service. But then it's really those two days. You get to meet some of the administration there, and then they fly you over to Cameroon. So it was about from the time I left my family in Denver to Cameroon was about three days. How much time had you spent outside Colorado when you got to Cameroon? Yeah. So, I mean, I was really fortunate in that a lot of, um, a lot of the vacations I took growing up were going outside of the country. Um, so I've been to a lot of different countries with my dad and brother. We've traveled a lot. I spent a lot of time out of the country, but I had never really lived somewhere for, you know, one plus years. I'd studied abroad in Spain, um, but definitely nothing like 
living in a community, not knowing the language and really immersing yourself in a country. I think visiting a country is definitely different than living there. Although I'd visited a lot of really cool places, I'd never lived somewhere, lived somewhere like this before. What are some of the places you've been? Um, so some of my favorite places I've been, Vietnam and Cambodia are definitely high on the list. Argentina was beautiful. We traveled, um, we traveled down in the Patagonia area and then my dad loves, loves Guatemala. So we've been back to Guatemala a few times and yeah, beautiful places. So a lot of places that are developing countries, but had you ever been to sub-Saharan Africa before? Um, no, I'd visit, I'd visited Morocco before with my dad, um, but I'd never been to West or Central Africa. It really just hearing about it and reading about it. So it sounds like the, the family background is very oriented towards seeing the world and getting an interna- international perspective. Uh, tell me about your parents. What did they do and uh, what motivated them to sort of take you all over the world? Yeah, definitely. So my parents um, had me when they were in college and I was kind of an accident baby. They, you know, fell in love. They were best friends since they were 12, had me fell in love, got married at a McDonald's. And it was kind of this spur of the moment, you know, take action. They moved to Colorado and raised me there, but they grew up, um, they grew up with no money. They wanted their kids to have a really cool life. And I think everything they did was to support that. Um, although they got separated when we were kids, they were always friends, stayed friends, um, and are still really good friends. But I think my dad primarily made it a priority for us to always be out of our comfort zone. When I was 10 years old for my birthday, he um, put me on a plane to India. I ended up living with a host family in India um, for one summer when I was 10, which was the first time I'd ever left the country. But since then, and you know, every trip after that, he really made it a priority to um, have those be. Yes. How long were you in India? I was there for about a month and a half, I think. That's a long time to be in India when you've never been outside the country before. Yeah, definitely. I mean, beautiful, beautiful experience, but definitely, I mean, I never left, I never left the country before. I never left Colorado and it was cool. So you're maybe a little more international than a lot of the people who go into the Peace Corps. I'm sure a lot of them had not had quite as much international experience as you had had. Some of them probably have had more, Um, but you get to Cameroon. Are you with a team of people that you have trained up with specifically for this project? Are you all going out together? Or are you joining in progress projects uh, that are already going on in Cameroon? Tell me a little, little bit about the organization once you get there. Yep. So how it works is you get there and your first three months are with your cohort. So I was an agricultural volunteer there. It was myself and 20 other ag volunteers, you spend the first three months in training all together in host families in the same community. But then after those three months, you get posted in a village and it's one volunteer per village. So, you know, you all get on your buses, you go off your separate ways. And it's kind of like this, you know, end to this grand three months together, and then you're on your own. So you go to your village. And then from there on, that's considered your service. And you are either joining projects that are already there in your community. You get partnered with a work partner there that is either working on stuff, wants to work on stuff, um, or needs your help. And you kind of just come in, you step in as this sort of, you know, I'll do whatever you need me to do kind of person. And, 
yeah, go from there. You're working. It's from then on, it's, you're not working with any other volunteers. You're mainly working with people in your community. So you've got basically, they tell you you're going to Cameroon officially three days later, you're in Cameroon. And then a short time after that, you're just out in a village by yourself, just trying to do a job and stay alive in Cameroon. Yep. <laughs> pretty much. Um, and a lot of people, I think the Peace Corps sounds like a great adventure and then they don't do it right because they have, I've got a mortgage, I've got a girlfriend, I've got a cat, I've got a car. What am I going to do with all this stuff that's keeping me? Yep. What did you do with the stuff that you had back home? Both the, not just the property, but the, the personal relationships when you just like, I'm just going to go to Cameroon for two years. I'll see you when I get back. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, the Peace Corps was something that I'd thought about for a really long time. And it always kind of been on my short list of things that I wanted to do. Um, and going into my senior year, like I said before, it was really one of the only positions that, you know, excited me. I wanted to fill out the application for and was really gung-ho on um, doing. So with that premise, everything in my life kind of fell secondary, right? I put all my money into my investment account. I sold my car. I, I knew everything I needed to do to make sure this thing could become a reality. Um, and I did it. So, you know, I feel like I make really good friendships and a lot of the friendships I have are, you know, strong and I'm able to continue those. But with that being said, I'm also very independent. And, um, I went in, you know, I want to, do this is for myself. I want to do this for myself and anything that's meant to be will be right. Whether that be the continuation of relationships or friendships or whatever. And yeah, I mean, I think Peace Corps was really awesome for my own self-development and it's something that I definitely would not take back. Let's, let's talk a little bit about Cameroon specifically uh, because it's an interesting place. Can you give us some background on the country having been there for two years, just where is it? What kind of people live there? What kind of geography is it? Does it have? Yeah. Cam Cameroon's an awesome country. So they call it Africa in miniature. And that's really because of all the different landscapes, ecosystems, languages, cultural groups. I mean, it is so diverse and diverse in everything. Um, I was posted in a mountain village. I was a mile high up in the cold mountain weather um, my boyfriend there, he was posted in a very arid, hot, desert-like environment. We were just a few hours away from each other. So people in every sing single village, locality, city, town speak totally different languages. People look different. Um, it's really, really diverse. Um, with that being said, there's two probably primary languages that are considered the national country languages. That's English and French. So you have your Anglophones and your Francophones. Um, and then the sections, you know, the regions of Cameroon are split off in that regard. So you have the Anglophone regions and the Francophone regions. Um, but yeah, I mean, Cameroon, their economy really stems from agriculture. I was agriculture volunteer and I did business undergrad. So it was kind of this perfect combination of, you know, hopefully my interests and my skill sets. But a lot of what they do is exports in, in agriculture. And that's, that's kind of where I focused a lot of my time. And what, what actually did you do on a day-to-day -day basis in this village in Cameroon? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really hard question because what is what is day-to-day? -day? So I had a dog there um, and I was also raising rabbits, but my primary 
job role, I guess you could say, was working in this training center. My counterpart there had started, created, and founded this training center in my community and would host trainings weekly or bi-weekly to different co cooperatives in the village. Um, he had his own farm. He raised goats, rabbits, everything under the sun. Really, my job was to, was to be a support system for him. Um, he really wanted to turn this training center into more of a micro lender or incubator type place where people in the village could come and get resources and funding to then start their own enterprises. Um, so I was really the main support system for that. His community center was just a few, um, a few blocks away from where I was. So I'd wake up in the morning, you know, get ready, take my dog out and then head over to the center for the day. But him and his family were like my family there. They were my support system. I had dinner with them and really created a strong network, strong network at that training center. Did you bring the dog with you to Cameroon or was this a, a Cameroonian dog that you adopted? No, this was a Cameroonian dog, Cameroonian village dog. <laughs> Did it get to come home with you? Yes, he is home with me right now. <laughs> oh, wonderful. What kind of dog? Just a village dog. He's a mutt. <laughs> Just a whatever they had in the village. Yeah, for sure. It's like, like I met in Egypt, the famous Egyptian brown dog. What kind of dog is that? It's a brown dog. Yes, exactly. He's just a um, village dog. <laughs> so this center, you said that the individual who ran this center wanted to be a micro lender. That sort of implies that he was not yet a micro lender. Yeah. So um, my counterpart's name, Eric, he, him and his family had started this training center in my village where what they offered were resources and trainings. They were experts on a lot of different subjects. So people would come and learn from them. What he wanted to do was reallocate funds to the training center and make it into a place where they had then could then invest in entrepreneurs. So this sort of um, incubator type style thing where people come pitch their ideas and then get money to do so because of this reallocation. Um, he wasn't operating currently when I arrived, he wasn't operating as a micro lender. Now, in as best of a capacity he can, um, he, he is operating as a micro lender. He is able to give out loans and people can now invest in their own, own social enterprises. Before going into micro lending, which I know is something you're passionate about, and it's an unbelievably interesting area uh, that I want to dive into, I do want to sort of cover the actual agricultural training that this center was doing. Because, you know, one of the things that for a long time, was a problem is Westerners would go to Africa thinking that they knew everything about farming and they'd go in with good intentions and try to teach African farmers to farm. And then all of a sudden it turns out, guess what? The soil in Africa is different than the soil on the Great Plains. Big surprise. And none of your stuff mm -hmm. works. None of your stuff works. Um, what were the, the sort of agriculture-based lessons that you took away from that, that you feel like are interesting or valuable pieces of knowledge for you to have? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great question. I, you're, I mean, you're completely right. I think people come from the U S having worked on a farm or lived on a farm their whole life and then come to Cameroon and it's completely different. Obviously it's in the tropics as close to the equator, whereas in the U S it's completely different. The soil is different. Everything's different. So during our training, it was really about learning what was applicable to Cameroon, to Cameroon and their environment 
for me personally, I hadn't worked on a big farm before. I'd only volunteered at a gro- at a greenhouse and that type of work was a lot different. Um, I think the, I mean, techniques I think is one thing, but really what I learned how to do was raise livestock. So the main, the farm that I worked on was primarily a livestock farm. We raised goats, chickens, rabbits. Um, I had my own rabbits. We had guinea pigs, um, all sorts of livestock. And that was something that I had never touched before. So being able to see how they interact with their, interact with their livestock, especially compared to U.S. factory farming, it's significantly more, in my opinion, significantly more humane and respectable to these, um, to these animals. So I think that was a key takeaway for me was really getting to see, you know, I see these factory farms in the U.S. that farm chickens, de-beak, cut off their heads and go with it. We really got to learn about the whole process of raising an, you know, raising a chicken ethically and then um, farming it in a way that's hopefully sustainable. When you get into the second semester, uh, you'll, if it's like my year was, uh, you'll have Professor Hyatt for Global Strategy and you'll do a case about a halal foods company and, and they go mm-hmm. into a lot of that. Uh, I think that there's some, it's a small Muslim minority in Cameroon, right? Yeah. So, um, it's primarily, yeah, the two it's either Islam or Christianity. Um, those are the two dominant religions. I was in a Christian community. Um, but yeah, a lot of, there are a lot, a big population of people that practice Islam. Was there any sort of halal influence in the more humane farming techniques? Did you see any of that or was it not really related? No. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, especially when we, when we first learned how to raise chickens, we ended up all um, learning how to kill a chicken ourselves, the halal way. Um, And yeah, I think that was very prominent in a lot of our training. Is there tension between the two communities, the two religious communities? Yeah, I would say, I would say, you know, with all religious communities, there's always a little, there's always some tension, but yeah, definitely in Cameroon, we have, we have religious, religious tensions. Thankfully, not so much tension that people were unwilling to learn from the folks just a few miles up the street. Yeah, uh, I would, yeah, I would say so. <laughs> um, what's the sort of standard of living in Cameroon? What's the level of wealth that the average person has? Um, I mean, that's a, that's a hard question. I think that'd be a hard question to answer anywhere, even in the U S when you have people like Jeff Bezos and then someone like me, who's, you know, not making anything, but looking at overall like wealth, um, people in the big cities, I think know how to make money and they live really well. People in the communities or smaller villages don't make a lot of money. I think it's hard to give like a dollar per dollar comparison, Um, because I don't think it's really a fair representation, but I'd say when, at least where I was, um, everyone had a home, they had really close tight knit families, which I think was most valued. Um, and then the communities were really strong. I think people had access to everything they needed, although, um, there's deficiencies everywhere in the system as there are in every country. Um, yeah, it seemed like, seemed like people, People were living with what they needed. In, in the United States, the number of people who 
work in agriculture is is pretty small. I think it's like one and a half percent. Do you have a sense uh-huh. of do you have a sense of how many people in Cameroon are working in agriculture and what role agriculture plays in the economy? Yeah, so l- like I said before, um, agriculture is a huge driver for a lot of their economic activities. I would say most, the majority of people work in agriculture, agriculture to some extent. So whether that be a small garden or a small plot on a farm, everyone has some sort of touch point in that industry. But then at least on the village level, I want to say every single family has a farm or a plot or some sort of um, some sort of livestock set up where they are actively getting getting food and um, income from those from those crops and or animals. Let's go into the micro lending piece because this is something that uh, is very tailored to small farming kind of enterprises. And I think a lot of people have heard about micro lending. Maybe they think they know a little bit about it. And maybe a lot of people listening really don't know that much at all about micro lending. Can you sort of give folks a rundown of what micro lending is and what the benefit of it is designed to be? Yeah, for sure. So I think micro lending, at least in Cameroon, from what I saw was being able to give out small loans to people so that they could then um, invest in their own enterprises to hopefully then give back to the lender. Um, These micro loans were anywhere from $5 to $100, I'd say. Um, And given that money, you could then buy your own livestock, buy your own crops, and then hopefully propagate that livestock or, you know, or propagate those crops or grow your um, livestock and sell it, sell it at the market. I think micro lending in general as an industry or as a um, e-commerce method is, you know, small loans that hopefully can make an impact for people that traditionally would not be able to get loans otherwise. And it's, Cameroon is a country like most countries that are, uh, are big targets for micro lending programs. This is not a country that has a sophisticated financial system by the standards of Western countries, right? Yeah, I guess when you look at the U.S. in terms of, you know, we have these big banks that offer out, offer out bigger loans to corporations. It's not the same, same level, um, but they definitely have, um, yeah, I think there are, de- there are absolutely organizations there that have these sorts of programs where you can get lending, get financing. Um, a lot of Peace Corps volunteers apply for grants through USAID, and that's a very prominent, um, prominent organization, at least in the communities, to offer financial help. Within Cameroon, they have their own banks and institutions that offer the same sort of lending. But again, getting access to that lending, especially if you're a small farmer, is really hard. So being able to have these touch points in the community that have those resources and have just some money to give out and invest in entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs is really key. And it's so critical because if you look at the U.S. farm economy, it all runs on debt. It all runs on lending. You know, every, every farmer in the United States probably has some substantial amount of debt, whether it's the mortgage on their farmland or whether it's yep. the borrowing that they do to purchase livestock, to purchase grain for the planting season, then it's paid back when you, uh, the crop matures and you can harvest it and sell it. And so the, the U.S. farm economy for 200 years has really relied on 
having a sort of sophisticated financial system, increasingly sophisticated as time has gone on and the loans run into the millions of dollars. But if you went into, you know, the farmers and merchants bank in North Dakota and you're a farmer and you want to buy five chickens, they would just look at you like you suffered a head injury because nobody gives a loan for five chickens. But if you're in, yeah. <laughs> if you're in Cameroon, right, that buying five chickens, that's a big chunk of your earnings. You might need credit for something like that. Yeah. And I think when we think about credit too, especially, you know, from my own personal experience, I can't speak to the whole, the country as a whole, but within my village, I mean, we think about credit as money on money, but really what it can be is, oh yeah, I'll give you the money to buy five chickens. And then if you give me, you know, those chickens eggs or whatever it may be, that can be considered uh, like repayment of your loan. Right. So it doesn't necessarily have to be this money for money sort of thing. Is micro lending typically a for-profit enterprise for the lender? I, w- I would say yes, um, because I think most things that are, are able to create some sort of measurable impact are for-profit, but um, I didn't really, you know, I didn't work with a big micro lending institution. I just did it in my locality, so I'm not totally sure, like, the exact specifications of it in Cameroon. I think in the U.S., when we see these micro lenders, the, you, ideally everyone has, you know, this sort of social impact on enterprise mindset, but um, in general, it is for profit, yes. That's really interesting stuff. Also interesting, we've got a holiday party coming up for the MBA program. It's on December 2nd at 8 p.m. at the Arts District Brewing Company. Uh, we're going to decorate some ornaments, wear some ugly sweaters, and uh, enjoy ourselves with our classmates as we get ready for the finals period. Uh, so yes, here we are in early November advertising a Christmas party. That's just the world that we live in now. Uh, as an advocate of the war on Christmas, I will end the war on Christmas when Christmas ends its illegal occupation of the month of November. Uh, but until then, I will continue to wage my war on Christmas. But you should go to the holiday party anyway. All right, let's do some fun questions. What's the worst movie you've ever seen? Oh my goodness. I don't, I could not tell you because I really do not watch movies. I mean, okay. I could tell you the best movie. I guess they're the all best. bad to you. If you don't like watching them, they're all bad movies. Casablanca's bad I, if you don't like movies. See, I don't even know what that is. I've heard about <laughs> it, but I am so out of touch with this pop culture thing. I think it's beyond me. <laughs> what's the, uh, what's the sort of pop culture in Cameroon, do they do they consume any American culture in any meaningful quantity? Yeah, definitely. I think you know people always have the news on when you go to a bar. There's sports, um, sports playing, whether that be in Europe or in the U.S. People definitely listen to American music or European music, and yeah, I would say that what what happens in the U.S. heavily influences a lot of these countries, and they definitely look to us as as a sort of um, indicator of how they should, how they should dress, what they should listen to. Um, yeah. What's happening. Speaking of music, what's a kind of music that you like that you're embarrassed to like? That I'm embarrassed to like. Yeah. I mean, I, I used to love country music. Then I sort of got off of it, but I would say country music. I think it's just under the radar and there's so many really good hits. <laughs> Nothing embarrassing about that. Is that a, a Colorado roots thing that you were exposed to country music early on? 
Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I think both of my parents would be ashamed to hear that I liked country music. So I don't know if I listened to it early on, but my friends in high school loved country music. And I think that's where I kind of started my bandwagon. Why would they embarrass? Why would they be embarrassed that you like country? I don't know. I think when they think of country music, they think of really popular, popular, you know, pop artists that like country, um, which I can understand is not the best there is to offer. But I think there's a lot of really good old country music that's good. I just try to go on Spotify and shuffle it and always end up with some good stuff. Do you have a favorite? Favorite country song? No. Or, or I... country artist. <laughs> um, or just some specific examples of who, who maybe people can go check out as examples of older country music that you like. Oh, I, honestly, I don't know. I just see, I don't know anything about artists. I just go on, you know, the classic like old country playlist that Spotify has and shuffle it and then get some like my discover weeklies are all country. That's, a, that's an interesting answer. I think if, if you were to ask my parents about the music that they listened to when they grew up, right, they would have favorite artists, but they could, a lot of people of that generation could also tell you favorite albums. They could tell you the year an album came out and they, yeah. knew, they knew this like granular detail about the artists that they were listening to and the albums that they were listening to. Cause you would have to go to a record store and flip through tons of records back when they were all on vinyl instead of just hipsters had music on vinyl. Everything was on vinyl. Uh, and now do you think we're losing the like, actual super fan kind of knowledge that people used to regularly have because Spotify will just deliver what we like. We don't even have to think about it or even remember who it was. Oh, I don't know. I'd say there are definitely still super fans. I think it's just me as like a user of media. I generally don't like care. I don't care about the creator. I just care about the, I don't know. I care about the content more so. So that's why I love my like discover weeklies, the shuffle the playlist, you know, hits for me. Whereas, I mean, I know a lot of people that don't like that. They don't like the Discover Weekly sort of feature where you're listening to new stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it depends. So it's not a broader cultural point. You're just not paying attention. Yeah, that's possible. Okay. Um, <laughs> what's the last book that you read other than MBA textbooks? Can't be on a reading list for one of your classes. The last book you read for you. The last, the last book that I read for me Okay. See, I, I was just about to say the lean startup, but I also kind of read that for business school. And then I also just finished reading the 20 minute networking, the 20 minute networking meeting, which is also another business school book. I mean, I think the last book that like I really read and enjoyed was probably um, Money Master the Game by Tony Robbins, <laughs> as bad as that sounds. <laughs> I should have asked a book you like that you're ashamed to like, but <laughs> I love that book. <laughs> I have not read it. It, it. What's it all about? Tell us about it. Yeah. So I think it, I think it's truly a beginner's book for if you ever want to be some, an informed investor, um, you know, with money as such an unapproachable topic, it's something that's very taboo, especially, um, especially with, women ultimately relying on their partners, their male partners as these like financial gurus and hopefully going to take over all the financial stuff. I think it's even more important that 
um, people, young people, especially women get involved with, you know, their finances and learning how to invest. I think that's the first book that gets you that touch point. And that's why I love it so much. <laughs> you've been a lot of places all around the world. What's your favorite place you've been? Vietnam. Why? Why Vietnam? That is Anthony Bourdain's favorite country, by the way. He always said oh, really? that, that he wanted to retire to Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, it is, I would, other than Cameroon, because Cameroon has a special place in my heart, but Vietnam is the most beautiful, vibrant, just exciting country. I think they have awesome food, which is always, you know, key. Um, they have awesome food. Everyone is really nice and it's just a really awesome environment. And yeah, I love it. So you've crossed a lot of places off the bucket list, but what's the place you want to go that you haven't been yet? Um, that's a hard question. You I can would give more say... than one answer. If you've got more than one answer, you can name seven <laughs> places. Yeah. So I guess probably the one place that's on my bucket list right now is to go to the Pyrenees because I've never visited the Pyrenees. Although I've been to Spain and I've been to France, I haven't been to the Pyrenees. Um, and I've heard all about it. That's what I'm named after. I think that would be my next place. Ironic. You've been all over the world, but not the place you're named after. Yeah. Um, so what did you learn about leadership from your time in the Peace Corps? I, I try to dig into the leadership lessons that people have taken from their pre-MBA experience. Hmm. I think in terms of leadership, there's all different kinds of leaders, right? I think when you look at someone who's a true leader, it's someone who can lead without the formal authority of being in a position of leadership. So being able to influence others who don't have to listen to you or don't have any incentive to, um, just having that presence and having the ability to um, exist in a space and have people want to listen to you, I think is really, really powerful. And that's something, something was, that was a key takeaway for me coming into Cameroon. I didn't know French. I didn't know the culture. I didn't know language. I really didn't know anything, which was exciting, but also scary. And for me and my, for me and my work, it was really important that I established some sort of credibility or try to earn respect from the people in the community. Um, so I was never, you know, in this official position of authority. And I think just learning how to be a part of a group there and learn what they need from me and how I can best, um, best, you know, start projects and lead projects with them was really hard. But once you figure it out and once you learn, um, learn how to be this, be this person that someone can come to, I think that's when it really starts to click and you realize, you know, how to, how to truly lead meaningfully. But that's a, a great lesson because you're in the, you're off by yourself in this village. How many people in the village? Where I was, it was about 8,000 people. So you're in a village of 8,000 people and not a single one of them has to do anything you say. Yeah. You want to you make change, but not a single person here has to do anything you say because they do not work for you. Yeah. Um, and they might not care either. <laughs> they might not care. They don't have to do anything you say and you want to make change. So you got to find ways to influence them. That's a, that's a really important lesson. And one that, you know, we're all going to have to master in the civilian world as we get out there and find that, uh, we work for bosses and we have clients and none of them have to do what we say either. 
Yep, <laughs> exactly. So you'd been all over the world. Had you been to LA before coming to Marshall? So my brother goes to school here. He goes, or he goes to Marshall undergrad and we had dropped him off. My dad and I had dropped him off at orientation, but that was really the only other time that I had kind of explored the city. <laughs> Any family in California besides your brother? Yeah, my grandparents live, live in Napa. And so do my, my aunt and uncle live in the Bay Area. Which is basically a different state. Yes. <laughs> it, it's basically a different state. I, this was the thing that blew me away the first time I really traveled outside California is, you know, you would go to some state and you can just like drive through the entire state in an hour and a half. And I, <laughs> yep. I, and I mean, states that look big on a map, like North Carolina doesn't look like a small <laughs> state. It's not Rhode Island. And then you would yeah. drive through, you know, I, I came back from my initial military training at Fort Benning and drove mm-hmm. home for the holidays. It was like mid-November and did a cross-country trip. And I would drive through these cities in the South that I knew the names from history class because they were the sites of you know, often major events in the civil rights movement or major sites of importance in the Civil War. And you drive through yeah. Birmingham, Birmingham, Alabama. And you're like, that's a big city, right? It's like, nah, you're literally from the city limit to city limit, you're through it in 15 minutes. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that's different. Okay. I, I get this is like just on a different scale where now you're in, you're from California. You can drive from basically San Clemente to Ventura County and you're in yeah. an urban or suburban center the entire way going through county after county. And it just goes on and on and on forever. You can't even drive through yeah. LA in 15 minutes. <laughs> um <laughs> But it, it's a totally different world in, in Northern California. I think Napa is beautiful. I've never been there, but I would love to go there. Um, yeah. You love to hike. We've got plenty of that in California. Yes. <laughs> so where, where did the passion for hiking come from? Yeah, so I think, I think it really started with my dad. I mean, both my parents moved us to Colorado when my brother and I were kids. So it was really my dad that took us, um, started taking us on hikes and myself, my brother, my dad, we started climbing the 14ers in Colorado. And that's kind of where it all started. We ended up um, starting hiking when I was seven, my brother was four and finishing almost all the 14ers before he turned 21. Um, We finished all of them before I turned 21. And yeah, I mean, it was, it really started from there and we love to hike. <laughs> How many mountains is that? All of the 14ers in Colorado. The, so there's 58 of them, 58 Whoa. of them total. And, and explain when we say a 14er, what does that mean? A 14er? So a 14er is a mountain over 14,000 feet. Um, there's 58 of them in Colorado, a few of them in California, and then a few of them scattered elsewhere. But Colorado really has the highest concentration of them. Are you planning to do Camp uh, Mount Whitney at any point? Maybe. I don't know. It's not on my not on my list right now, but we'll see. <laughs> it's not on the list. Not impressing you? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's interesting, though. It, it, Whitney is not interesting to you. How come? I think it's less about the mountain and more about the people. Um, I've done these with my brother and my dad, obviously, but it's definitely been something that has been like a tradition of ours. I think if we were ever going to do another, you know, big 
solid hike, I'd probably want to do it with them. Got it. Well, fly them out here. It's, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, what's the <laughs> tallest mountain that you've ever had to deal with? So the tallest mountain was probably the one in, in Colorado. We did the t- highest 14er in Colorado, which was 14,000 and some. Um, but the highest elevation that I've ever been was when I was hiking to the base camp of K2. So that was around 18,000 feet. What was the journey to K2? Did you go in from the Pakistan side? Yeah. So we flew in from the Pakistan side and then you hike on a glacier for a few weeks and get to base camp. And then from base camp, obviously there's the whole mountain ahead of you. We didn't do the mountain. (laughs) Um, but base camp itself is a entire journey just to get to it. (laughs) And I think this is worth going into a little bit because this is a very interesting topic that, you know, once you start getting to mountains in the Himalayas, it's a whole other league of mountain that you're dealing with. And the physical rigors are just in a totally different category than I think uh, people who are, have no experience in mountaineering, maybe don't fully appreciate when we say the base camp, Mm -hmm. that's not the base of the mountain, right? That's like way up there. Yeah. So, I mean, the base camp is, yeah, obviously it's not the pure base of the mountain, but I think base camp is generally used as a term for overall camp where most of these expeditions set up. So have expeditions from across the world. Every country will send, you know, however many or so teams. And that's kind of where they'll post up, which it's a good enough, low enough elevation where you can have some sort of stability in your health and then create meaningful, you know, meaningful gain from there. What elevation is the base camp at K2? I think it's around 17 or 18,000 feet. Yeah. So I just want the listeners to understand when we say this, that is, I think, taller than any mountain in North America, except for Denali, right? Yes. <laughs> like this is way, way up there. And when we say the, it's safe for your body. Talk to people a little bit about what happens to your body when you start going above like the 18, 19, 20,000 feet elevation, because it's unreal that people do this. Oh, I know. I mean, it's crazy. And it's even, it's even more unreal for the, for the porters that are doing it every day as their jobs or, you know, months on end working, working with these expeditions, because they're the ones that are truly putting the most physical toll on themselves. I think for me personally, I'd climbed all the 14ers or climbed most of the 14ers at that point. So I knew what 14,000 feet looked like, but when I got to 18,000 feet, it was a whole other ball game. Um, I mean, it's really hard to breathe, obviously, but altitude sickness is really, um, is very relevant and prominent. Um, and just being really exhausted every step you take, it's like a whole battle. I mean, you take a step and then you sit there for a few minutes and then you take another step just to catch your breath. Um, obviously nausea and headaches and all these other things that come with being up that high. But I think in general, you think about, um, being at 14,000 feet, it's the highest elevation you can get to in, in Colorado, at least where I was from. Um, that seemed like no problem to me. And then just that extra 4,000, 4,000, 4,000 feet, it really does a toll on your, on your health. <laughs> well, and that's why it takes a couple weeks to get up that glacier, right? Is that if you yeah. go up too fast, you just like, you just pass out. Your body needs to acclimate as you're going up. 
Yeah, for sure. And I think that's even more important once you start climbing the mountain. That's the reason why they have these camp one, camp two, camp, camp three, et cetera, so that you can take that time to acclimate and make sure you're healthy before moving forward. You made it back from K2 nice and safe. You did have at one point a sort of close call that required an evacuation during a hike. Yeah. So we, so my family, obviously we're big hikers, but we've hiked in a bunch of different States. One of the key hikes that we did growing up was the, um, slot Canyon in Utah. It's the pre Gulch slot Canyon. It's the longest slot Canyon in the world, I believe. And we've been doing that ever since we were growing up. But the last year that we did it, we ended up getting caught in a pretty crazy flash flood. Yeah. But you made it out of that one too. Just dodging, (laughs) just dodging bullets all over the place. Um, so no bullets to dodge at the full-time NBA mixer going to be a nice and relaxing environment. November 17th on party lawn from five to six 20, uh, come on out and enjoy the company of friends and some crisp fall air. It's going to be beautiful. You can probably see on campus, the leaves are starting to change. It's expected to be around 60 degrees when we do the fall mixer. So it's going to be a really nice fall environment right before we break for the Thanksgiving day holiday. So come on out on November 17th at 5 PM for the uh, full-time MBA mixer. All right. Now we're going to play a little game. Uh, this is a game that I've played with our previous guests. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to spin a random number generator that is numbered one through 15. And that number is going to select an animal because a poll was recently taken asking Americans if they believed that they could beat various wild animals in a fight. And so we're going to pick an animal for you and we're going to see if you think you could take this animal in a fight. Let's spin the wheel. You get animal number seven, you get a chimpanzee. 17% 17 of Americans believe they could fight a chimpanzee and win. Do they have chimpanzees? Are they native to Cameroon? Um, I'm not totally sure. I know they have monkeys there. I'm not sure if they're native or what that classification is. Yeah. Uh, so no personal encounters with chimpanzees so far. So this is purely speculative. Yes. All right. So do you think you could take the chimpanzee? Only 17% of Americans think they could do it. Yeah, absolutely not. Absolutely not. No way. (laughs) (laughs) One of the animals on this list is a bear. You have personal experience with a bear. I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, I fought a bear. <laughs> you evaded a I bear. Th- <laughs> as it, uh, let's tell this story. This is a wild story. Yeah. So I was, when I was um, living in Colorado, before I went off to college, it was in my parents' house or my dad's house. And I was just sitting in the living room and because bears are so comfortable with humans in Colorado, they really just come into the neighborhoods, take the trash and leave. This bear ended up opening my house door and came, walked down the stairs into my living room. And I didn't even realize until I turned around the bears in my living room and I, I started freaking out. What did you do? So I immediately ran to the First of all, how, how old were you at this time? On a, oh man, I'm not totally sure. I want to say 18 or maybe 17. Okay. So you're not a little kid at least. No, I wasn't a kid. I was, yeah, I was sitting at home watching Netflix and I think I just heard this bear behind me and it was on, on its hind legs, standing up huge bear. 
And I immediately ran to the patio because we had a patio that attached to our, attached to our living room called 911 or no, I texted my dad and I was like, you need to come home. There's a bear in our house. And he didn't believe me. He did. He was like, you're joking. He was at dinner. Didn't say anything. I was crying. <laughs> it's a, it's a plea, but it also, I mean, it's a trap, right? Cause if someone told me there was a bear at my house, I live alone. So there's no one to rescue. If somebody told me there was a bear yeah. at my house, I would just be like, all right, guess I'm not going home for a little while. Oh so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so animal control, I assume safely took the bear away from the house. Yeah. So I was on the deck and I just watched the bear wander around our living room. He ended up going out the front door again and left. I mean, I stood on the porch until the animal control came, but they were like, yep, that's just Harold. He's wandering around the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, but it was, it was name was Harold. They know the bear specifically. Oh yeah. They know the bear specifically. <laughs> And Harold is just wandering around Colorado, probably to this day, knowing how to open doors. Yep. They are, they are very in touch with the, how the humans live. <laughs> is, was this um, like a knob on the door or was it a handle? Like how hard would it be for, for something without opposable thumbs to grab this thing? I mean, you, you would think it would be difficult. It was a handle, but these bears have really figured out every possible way to open things. I know I heard about the same bear getting into someone's house the, the weekend after, and they'd opened up the garage door and went and gone to the bathroom in someone's living room. <laughs> and I mean, wow. these bears, like they learn quickly. They're really smart and can, I mean, these bear traps that you, these bear um, like garbage traps that you have to like get around they have to be very complicated because the bears know how to, how to maneuver almost every system. So I guess he didn't like the offerings in your kitchen. So Harold never returned to your house. Yeah. I mean, at least, at least that I know. of. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully, hopefully Harold does finds another hobby other than opening people's doors and walking into their living rooms. Oh, I know. Um, find something else to do with the rest of his life. Speaking of the rest of our lives, uh, you're here at business school and I'm interested in what your experience has been like and where you want to go once you're not in business school anymore. So tell me about how you've enjoyed Marshall. Yeah, I really like Marshall so far. I came to business school wanting to be surrounded by people who were really cool and had really cool things to say. And I think that's the experience I've had so far. People are really smart. They're on it. They're insightful. And I want to be challenged. I want to be in an environment where I can learn the most, you know, standing on the shoulders of standing on the shoulders of giants, right. Going to the experts and then growing from them. Um, and I think that's the exact experience I've had so far moving forward. Um, I'm hoping to obviously use this, use this experience and learn from my peers and get as most as I can out of them, but then hopefully go into some sort of impact VC or impact philanthropy role. I think impact, um, impact investing, that whole industry is the perfect combination of my interests and where my skill sets lie. And I think business schools is setting me up perfectly for that. Is this something that was uh, partly motivated by the experience with micro lending? Yeah, I think Peace Corps in general um, had a really big impact on me, but just in terms of financial, this idea of financial literacy, asset management, and overall, you know, financial, financial equity, 
uh, that sort of, that sort of um, role has steered me down this path. So what are the kinds of companies in this space that, that somebody might be interested in learning more about? Yep. Because if you say investment of- banking, right, we know it's Goldman, it's JP Morgan, everybody knows the companies, consulting firms, everybody knows the companies, tech firms, everybody knows the companies. But there's a lot of interesting companies in this space. And I don't know that they're as well known to our classmates. So give us a little sense of who's out there. Yeah, for sure. No, they definitely they definitely aren't. I think a big prominent player right now is Red F. They um, invest primarily in social enterprises. So people that are helping to um, bridge that employment gap, finding people that aren't able to tra- traditionally get employment, um, work at these social enterprises. Red F is an investment philanthropy firm. They're doing really big things. Kiva Capital is another big firm. I think in LA, you see this hub of investment impact VC firms, but all across the country, you have people or firms from, you know, $1 million in funding to mil- hundreds of million dollars of funding to um, create this, create this meaningful change in the community. Is there a geography to it? Or are those companies tending to cluster in a particular place? To be honest, I, I would say they're mainly, you know, focused in the cities, like their big hubs are in cities. So LA, New York, cities like that. But really now we're seeing them pop up, pop up everywhere. I think this is a big, um, uh, this is a big change. We're really looking towards uh, figuring out how to invest in cool companies and people that are doing really important things. And these impact VC firms are, are starting to notice that and they're everywhere. (laughs) Do you have a sense of the role that you would want to play in a company like that? I'm not totally sure yet. I think right now, a lot of these firms in terms of, you know, summer internships, which is what I'm looking at right now, they offer mainly fellowship positions, which I think are a really cool opportunity to get like this sort of consulting hands-on experience where you get to be partnered on a project or one of the portfolio projects and then do everything from, you know, overall inception of inception of an idea to ultimately execution and final like implementation of it. So in terms of like an actual role, I don't necessarily know right now, right now I'm mainly focused on these sort of fellowship programs or learning opportunities that they have for summer internships. And you would not be interested particularly in a traditional finance company or traditional finance job like investment banking as a way to pivot. You want to go straight in and get your hands on it. Yeah, I think right now I'm not looking in, I'm not looking at an analyst position. I don't know if I am like behind the scenes sort of numbers person. I do really like the numbers, but I see myself as more of an outward facing client facing partnerships type of person. And you've certainly got experience that would suggest that you would excel in a role like that. Yeah, hopefully <laughs> we'll see. Um, interested maybe in trying to evaluate what kinds of investments to make, or is it more of a marketing role that you're interested in? Yeah, I think definitely evaluation right now. I'm, I'm working on the Turner Mint Impact case competition. So it's the full year long, you get really hands-on experience with the impact investing space. It's everything from creating an investment thesis to then sourcing, doing due diligence, and then ultimately executing an investment proposal. I think the whole idea of figuring out, you know, 
what companies are good and what ones are doing the coolest stuff um, and which ones align most with our values, I think is a really cool, cool position. Um, yeah. We just did registration for the, the spring semester. I think you guys register at the same time that the second years do, right? Yeah, we registered yeah. on, yeah, this, this week. Um, so do you have classes that you're targeting to sort of prepare you for the impact investing world? Yeah. So I wanted, I bid on three classes and I only got one of them, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh-huh. So I, I do want to do that. I think the main class that I wanted was this negotiation class, which I'm really excited for. Um, mm-hmm. But I am going to try to get into some sort of venture feasibility, intro to ventures, intro to ventures going forward. People love negotiation. I have not taken it, but people rave about it. It's a very popular course. Yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> Do you know, um, the, obviously you don't have a summer position lined up because they're not like the investment bankers where they've, they've already picked their people by Thanksgiving. This is a slower yeah. recruiting timetable, right? Yeah. I can't believe how fast the investment banking firms pick people. Oh yeah, they're but on it. I mean, if you, you know, you know. How do you, well, how do you know? I, I didn't <laughs> know that soon. So I didn't pursue it. Like, who knows? Yeah. Maybe, maybe I should have been an investment banker this whole time. I'll never know because I didn't know on day one. Yeah, exactly. Um, so much <laughs> for getting to explore everything, right? They tell you business school, you get to explore everything. And it's like, oh yeah, it's week one. Do you want to be an investment banker or not? Exactly. <laughs> now's the I know, time you to, really got to commit. Yeah. You got to speak to 37 people at Lazard to get hired or you're, you're never going to make it and you've got to start today. It's like, all right. Yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> I guess I'll do something else. Um, <laughs> and probably if it's something like what you're talking about, probably something more interesting, frankly. Uh, no offense we'll to our see. investment bank, no offense to our investment banking friends, but I would, I would rather get involved in what you're doing than do valuations of companies. Um, <laughs> so we're coming up to the end of the hour and I'm going to, briefly congratulate myself for the very first time coming even close to our target time of one hour. I've gone way over (laughs) time on the first two episodes and tried to exert some actual discipline over myself. So we're at about one hour right now. And uh, I know Pyrene, you've got uh, some stuff that you've got to get to. And so I'll let you go, but I want you at the end of the episode to get a chance to, to do the two minutes where we give the guests two minutes to talk about whatever they want to talk about. Uh, So the floor is yours. All right. Um, man, that's such like such liberty. I think gum right now is such an interesting topic because we've seen all these gun gum companies come in with all these different marketing angles, you know, whether that be taste, flavor, price, whatever. But when you look at this company named Pure, it seems like they're doing it best. They have the xylitol, they have the key ingredient, they have the pricing strategy that's right, but their branding just sucks. They've only been able to get out there because of pure marketing and TikTok really boosting their brand. I mean, you see these gum companies, they've done it all, every sort of way to try to market themselves, but then Pure comes in, they have one influencer promote them on TikTok, and all of a sudden, all of Gen Z is on their side. It's insane crazy. That's all. I am speechless because I think, first of all, I think that's really fascinating, really interesting. And I'm really happy that you picked that topic. But (laughs) I think if you gave me a thousand guesses, 
about what the <laughs> two minute topic would be. I just would never have come up with gum. <laughs> I didn't well, know gum was interesting. I didn't know gum was interesting until right now this second, but it turns out it yeah. is. So uh, what are they doing on TikTok that is winning the market share? Well, okay. So TikTok now is a huge like marketing ploy and a huge game for a lot of these companies and small businesses. Like they'll have no market share, get someone on TikTok or get a viral TikTok. And all of a sudden they blow up and sell out of like everything. And it's crazy. I mean, it's this thing where you're seeing consumers now go to this platform to buy their products as opposed to traditional methods of finding things like they're not even asking their friends they are just going to TikTok. They trust the social media platform over everything. And that's a crazy, that's a crazy trend. So their marketing geniuses, I guess, is the gum any good? Yeah, I think it's awesome. I have, I have some in my backpack. All right. Uh, so anybody who wants to try this gum, come hit Pyrene up in the courtyard when you see her and see if she's got any left. Uh, <laughs> Pierney, I want to thank you for being on the show. This was a really, really fascinating conversation. And we are very excited to see what awaits you in the world of impact investing. I think it's going to be a really fun journey that you're on. Uh, but I'm very grateful for you to come on and share your experiences in Cameroon with us. And uh, it's been a great episode. We really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much, John. <laughs> All right. And everybody tune in next week for our next guest on MBAs Unplugged.